Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today for the show that is shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. QBAC is a next-generation advancement solution that reimagines alumni engagement to increase major planned and principal giving. QBAC acts as a force multiplier for fundraisers, enabling them to focus on what they do best, developing deep relationships with prospects and cultivating them into lifelong donors. QBAC automates the qualification process beyond simple scoring to ensure that your fundraisers have the best prospects. QBAC also uncovers actionable insights about current and future prospects to help fundraisers develop personalized cultivation strategies. Start closing bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Also, how about being our next host for the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow? I'm looking forward to two things this summer, getting back to the ballpark with my kids and getting the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow back on the calendar. If your organization would like to be a host location, let's schedule a time to chat. The Responsive Fundraising Roadshow provides six hours of the best fundraising training out there based on Responsive's four sense-making tools. Hosting Responsive's Roadshow is not like hosting a major conference that requires months of planning and all types of resources. All we need you to do is provide us with a safe learning environment for 25 adult professionals in your community who want to understand how highly effective fundraising really works. There is no cost to your organization, and we will reimburse you for all related expenses. If your organization would like to host the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow in your community, reach out and let's have a conversation today. Hi, Wanda. I am delighted to have you today on the Fundraising Talent Podcast. You and I have gotten to know each other, I don't know, we've probably been talking to each other for about the last nine months. I remember I was... I was out doing some consulting work. Uh, I was down in Georgia and you and I connected on the phone. We talked for like 45 minutes to an hour. And I said, I got to get you on the podcast. I got to get you stirred up. You got to say some stuff. So, uh, so I'm delighted to have you on here now, six months, nine months after we talked the first time. Um, Wanda, before we dive into our subject, our topic of conversation, how about we just ask you to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Wanda Scott, and I am the owner of a strategic fundraising firm. We partner with organizations on pre-campaigning planning and preparation and establishing major gifts programs and coaching them through it. And where are you at in the world? Sure. I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I remember you telling me that. You know, I don't know if uh, did I share with you my wife and I were both in my wife and I were engaged on the Golden Gate. Did I tell you that story? I think so. Yeah. yeah. So my so. my parents lived up in Marin County 
dad was uh, dad was stationed in Alameda, uh, and I lived with mm-hmm. my mom and dad for about six months. And um, uh, Eric and I had been dating while we were in college. I moved out there to save some money. I think it was. I actually worked out at Alcatraz for six months, and uh, gave tours. And uh, she came out for uh, Christmas. Christmas, and uh, walked her up on the Golden Gate and asked her to marry me on Christmas Eve. So. We like the Bay Area. It was, it was nippy. Yes, it was cold. It was cold. And, <laughs> yeah, but we, you know, and I haven't been back to the Bay Area. I, mean, I, I have been back to the Bay Area once. Uh, but uh, one of the things I assumed was that, that, you know, that Golden Gate will always be there. So every time, every time we see that bridge, we see it. You know, I can point out to my kids that that's where your mom and that's where me and your mom got started right there at the on that South Tower. So. Yeah. Beautiful place. Yes, Wanda. So uh, we ask our guests to come with a big idea or bold opinion. And uh, what do you got for us today? Sure. I um, am really intrigued about how money stories impact the donor and the fundraiser relationship. Oh, my. What does that mean? Money stories. Tell me what that means. Right. Yeah. So money stories. Um, I first was introduced to the concept through a financial planning course, actually. So it yeah. wasn't involving fundraising at all. But it's basically the story that is created by your parents or the adults in your childhood that shape your attitudes and behavior about money and about people with it or without it. Yeah. Keep going. Keep going. <laughs> okay. Um, so one of the things with money stories is that people, most people are not even aware of their money story. Like they um, are kind of moving through life. Um, and that was the point of this financial course, right? To get me to stop and think why I was, you know, I spending money or saving money or investing money the way I was. How could I do better? I could be more responsible. And then they began to tie it into the stories of my childhood and how my parents managed money and how they talked about money. And so all of that um, kind of led me to start thinking about fundraisers because we are interacting with people with money. Um, and as we're sitting in those meetings, what what behaviors or attitudes do we have about money? Um, do we have about people with money that could be impacting the donor interactions? And so I'll give you an example. So I grew up in a household. Uh, my father was a pastor and we talked about money yeah. all the time. Yeah. I knew how much my parents made yeah. or brought into the house um, at a very young age. And so, um, and my parents had a really balanced view on money and people with money on capitalism. My father was a business owner at one point. And so I was very comfortable with conversations about money, with interacting with people with money. So as I moved and progressed in the fundraising field, it was not a challenge to me to sit across people who were wealthy, right? right? Because I had had kind of a really healthy experience with money. But if you're raised in a household where you never talk about money, um, you may have money and it's, it's considered a thing that you keep very quiet. Mm -hmm. Um, that you don't share and talk about with other people. Um, You might be in a household that is, you know, feels like people with a lot of money are on a certain pedestal or on a pedestal and folks without money are not. And so once you sit down with that donor, you're bringing all of that to the conversation and to the relationship. And not only that, the donor has a money story, right? And so all of those experiences are intersecting in those meetings and they're, they're, they're playing out in ways that we're not always conscious of. Um, and I'd love to see how, if people could begin to think more about 
you know, maybe I'm having challenges with being a major gift fundraiser, right? Yeah. Folks who are doing more kind of back office grant writing may not have these same experiences, but a lot of times frontline fundraisers do feel sometimes intimidated or nervous, um, you know, not confident about um, being in those conversations. And so if you're able to maybe unearth that and identify and name it yeah. and then begin to work through that, um, possibly those relationships and you get more people that would be more comfortable with fundraising than folks that are really, you know, shy away from it. And a lot of it, I think, is based on these these like attitudes and behaviors and perspectives about people with money or people without money. Right. Because it can also be folks not valuing folks who don't give a lot of money and valuing donors who give them more money more. Um, yeah. So those are the it, it, yeah. isn't it. Isn't it, isn't that part of the reason? So one of the things people are constantly hearing me say is that I wish we could get more fundraisers in front of the donor. So anybody, any young fundraiser who comes to me right now and they say, what should I do? What direction should I go? I'm going to be saying, get in front of the donor as quickly as possible. Do donor facing work. Um, there'll always be a high demand for donor facing work, even donor facing work, perhaps that's do, being done remotely, like. If, if it was being done in a format like you and I are having this conversation here, get in front of the, get in front of the donor. But isn't that some of the Wanda, isn't that some of the challenge that we face in fundraising in that? You know, let, let me preface this with sort of this observation from my own experiences. And I'm sure this has sort of been somewhat your experiences too. Once you can get on the other side of the donor's money story, isn't the fundraising process sort of, much easier. Like once you can start to unravel what their story is and you can get the getting money, quote unquote, on the table. So it becomes part of the relationship. Doesn't the, doesn't in many ways, the fundraising process sort of flow from that. Has that been your experience? Yeah. yeah. And it feels less like fundraising and more of just making connections and building relationships. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I sat in, a, yeah. I sat in a, I, w I was working with a, a, a client down in Georgia a number of years ago. I sat in a Chick-fil-A with a guy during the, in the midst of a feasibility study. And I had this conversation with this guy for like three hours. He wouldn't stop talking, but he basically told me his money story. He basically told me from, you know, and I picked up on all sorts of cues and stuff, but I got to say it sure as hell helped me, you know, helped me help my client, you know, navigate this particular donor because he basically told me the way that money, just like you just sort of did as, as it relates to your father, for example, um, I, I, you know, knowing what their story is, but, but you have to get to that. You can't have that money story play out. You can't hear that if you're not at the lunch table with them. Absolutely. And you don't ask it. Mm. You don't say, so donor John, what right. is your money story? That's not how it happens, right? <laughs> right. It happens through um, sharing. You know, one of the things that I've found um, as a woman of color, as a frontline fundraiser, yeah. is that people were always interested in how I got there, right? It was, it was like maybe I was one of the few fundraisers that they had, you know, ever met that was a person of color. Yeah. And, um, and so I was very open. I would share and you would just be surprised. I would talk about my childhood and I would talk about, you know, the fact that my dad was born in 1908 <laughs> and that creates, you know, a, a different kind of dynamic between child and father. And then the more that I would open up, they would open up about their childhood. And then I'd find out that maybe their dad invented something or had a patent. And that's how they kind of come into this money, right? It was inherited or, you know, they were self-made. 
They came from parents who were maybe were in a rural area and now, you know, they were able to get an uh, education and, and build a good life for themselves. And so I've, I've found that the, the money story comes out over time. Yeah. But if you are aware of your own, there's questions you can ask. And there's things, you know, usually a donor over time will share a lot with you. I mean, I've found that they're sometimes sharing more confident and confidential information that maybe they have some people that know them yeah. more personally than you. Um, I, I, so, yeah. I, I'm being a little bold in this forthcoming book about the issue that I take with um, sort of the well screening and the data, you know, all the data that mm. we gather on donors, for example. And, and, and I had not incorporated this thinking into, into that particular chapter, but <clears throat> I think that's kind of what you're getting at. You know, there's nothing there's nothing that a well screen on a donor is ever going to tell you about a person's money story. It's going to give you a lot of quantitative information, but it's not going to give you the qualitative um, sort of the, the story that sort of emerges from you know, relationships that they have and, 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 and the, the things that, you know, their parents taught them and their relationship with perhaps the church. And I mean, there's, there's nothing wealth engineer or anybody else is going to be able to tell me in that sort of context. Am I right? Yeah. I mean, I think wealth screens are helpful. They're <clears throat> useful, right? They provide you with some level of, you know, guidelines. Um, in sewing, there's called seam allowance. And so, you know, there's a seam allowance, but if you want to go bigger or larger, you can kind of adjust. And so they kind of help to create some level of border. You understand some really important things about the donor and can give you indicators. But until you sit down with that donor, yeah. you don't know everything. All, all, you know, research, these are public, these are public records. Sure. So this is not access to every dollar that they have. You don't know the commitments they have or the values they have around their giving. Yeah. Right. If you meet somebody and they really support a certain type of organization or, cert or their church, there may be very personal reasons for that. And getting behind that and understanding that is really important. But yes, you know, you, you do the screening, but you just have to do all the discovery yeah. yourself. Right. And that's talking to people. Wanda, do you think some of this, some of the reason that we're not able to, for some of us who are not able to effectively, I do, I, I have this conversation in our seminar sometimes. It's almost the same. I love that you have a, you, you call it a money story. Um, <clears throat> we haven't, we haven't told our own money story. Some of us haven't reconciled our own issues with money. Mm. You know, I got in trouble. I got trouble. I got in trouble with college in college with credit cards and that sort of stuff. And we had to clean all that up before my wife and I got married, for example. Um, but that's part of my money story. You know, and I think about, uh, <clears throat> in our seminars, for example, we have, we have people, uh, we ask the question, it's a money story question. You know, what's that first memory you have with money? And my first memory is the way that my grandfather would always stubbornly fight over who got to pick up the bill when, when he took us all out to, um, dinner, you know, he, he would not let any of my, any, my dad or any of my other uncles at the table who wanted to, you know, assert themselves and say, I'm going to pick up the tab. He wouldn't let them. That's the first memory I have of money. Um, but, but is that some of what fundraisers have to be aware of too, is that we've got to sort of reconcile and understand what our story of money is too, or we're pro because if we don't, if we don't, are we going to be that receptive to even listening to and even be able to hear like I can hear your money story because I know what mine is. And so I can relate to it. Is that part of mm -hmm. what it is? Yeah, I think it's also, um, so let, let me 
kind of develop that a little bit more. So one of the things I talk about in a few of my blogs is that there's this money story and then there's these power dynamics that intersect, right? And so in power dynamics, I mean things like class, race, gender. It's all happening as you sit down, right? So if I'll give you a a really good example. So if I'm sitting next at a table with a donor and the donor has never, his, his or her interaction uh, with a person of color has always been from a certain perspective of service and not necessarily in discussions around money. Yeah. If I'm a person of color and I've never actually been around folks who are wealthy and now I'm at a table with someone talking about, are you interested in a charitable gift annuity? Right, or right. Are you, you know, and so all of that is playing out in that conversation. And what's happening is the person, if they haven't acknowledged that they have, you know, whatever that money story is, there might be some challenges to your money story. Yeah. Right. So if you understand, okay, I don't always feel comfortable around wealthy people or I'm uncomfortable around um, talking to people that I normally, you know, when I talked about my money or my finances, I'm talking to someone that looks exactly like me and now I'm not. Yeah. And how does that make me feel or age? Right. I'm talking to this young person about this wealth that I have. And so all of that is happening. And I don't expect the donor to understand those dynamics, but I expect the the fundraiser as they're going into it to understand this person might might have might need a little time to get accustomed to the fact that you are sitting across the table from them talking about money. Yeah. And so what I don't take away is this internalized fear of, oh, I did a terrible job. We're not connecting. You know, I don't want to do this work anymore because sometimes people will get out of frontline fundraising because they just feel so uncomfortable or inadequate or insecure. All of those things are playing out in those conversations. And some other folks, you know, they don't feel that way. Right. And they're perfectly fine with those dynamics um, for a number of reasons. But I think um, particularly from the fundraiser side, because I'm always I'm always concerned with how fundraisers are experiencing um, these donor interactions Um, from the fundraiser side. If I've done a little some training or at least had some acknowledgement of this, when I walk into those meetings, I don't feel I don't bring some of that baggage with me. Yeah. Right. I show up knowing this might be a huge transition for this person and I'm going to allow space for it, but also continue to do my job. Um, and that's a level of discernment that people will have to have. And I think you can't even get there if you haven't done some of this initial training that I think fundraisers should have um, because it's becoming more diverse, right? More yeah. people are, I mean, the field is still <laughs> pretty traditional, but it's becoming more it's, diverse. Our donors are becoming more diverse. I, I had a guest on here, I don't, I don't know, six mm-hmm. weeks ago who said to me, Jason, you know, we we were talking about, you know, increasing the number of women and people of color in the field, for example, that were in some of these major gifts roles. I think that was kind of the context to which we were talking, but I'm curious to know your uh-huh. thoughts on this. So the, 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 the money story conversation that I'm telling you, it lasted three hours. It was between two white guys sitting on a bench in, in Georgia, um, in a Chick-fil-A, mm-hmm. right? Would that, mm-hmm. would that, is it naive on my part to assume that that dynamic would have played out the same way for you? or could have played out the same way for you. Could you have sat there as a woman of color? Could I expect you to, is it fair to say that I could expect you knowing that you and I are, let's say we're equally as talented and equally as knowledgeable about how all this works, that that would have played Mm -hmm. out almost perhaps identical for you or, 
or is that naive on my part? No, I think it depends on the donor. So it really would have been so up it to depends. him. It would have been a, if he felt comfortable with me, right? Yeah. And so sometimes um, the donor doesn't feel comfortable. He would, if a white, if you're talking to an older white man and he sees a younger white man, yeah, he's going to immediately feel more connected, right? It may happen sooner, but it doesn't mean that my three hour conversation won't happen. It may not happen as fast as yours did, yeah. but it could possibly happen, right? I've had. Um, you know, because I've worked at institutions that um, a lot of institutions that, you know, uh, most of the donors were white yeah. um, and older. Yeah. Um, I have had, you know, experiences with donors that have just been magical. People that, you know, actually became friends like long after, like they're still a part of my friend network yeah. because we were able to connect. So, you know, I don't want to say that race, gender, age is always a barrier, yeah. but sometimes it might be a little hurdle that people have to get over on both sides, right? On both sides of the conversation. And, um, you know, and in some cases, you know, he, he might be the type of person that would never connect with me like that, or he might find things in my background to connect to. Right. And so that's why I think it's important as you share authentically who you are, yeah people can grasp on to what they feel comfortable about, particularly if there's a lot of difference in that, you know, differences. Like for you, for instance, you and I are different, but we have a lot of similarities in terms of the way we were raised, yes. right? And so that's always a point where we can always go back to, right? And, and you feel more comfortable talking to someone along those differences because there's some shared humanity there and some shared lived experiences. And just because he's an older white guy doesn't mean... We don't have anything in common. Well, it it, right? it kind of makes me yeah. think, it kind of makes me think that, and it's good that I'm talking to a woman of color about this because it, it's making me wrestle with actually what worked, what worked there and what didn't work there or what would have worked differently mm -hmm. for you. In some ways, I don't think it's so the hurdle. So we've got, we've got race, gender, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever we bring to the table, we've got all those sort of identity markers that we bring to the table. Mm -hmm. But I think the hurdle mm -hmm. there that I cleared was the money hurdle. And I don't know that we've wrestled with that enough in our space that and, and, and because I almost wonder if, if at times part of what we need to be discussing when we talk about race and gender and other identity markers that we have for ourselves as mm -hmm. individuals, when you bring two people together regardless of what their unique individual identity markers are, if you're talking about mm -hmm. negotiating a gift, the mm -hmm. money story in, in his case, in his case, the reason why he wanted to have this conversation with me, I don't think had as much to, I mean, I could be wrong, but I think it was because I was willing to have a money conversation with him that nobody else in his lifetime thus far had ever been willing to have what I have. So what did you I'm sorry. What I have found time and time again, and I think other fundraisers have told me the same thing, that because fundraisers are inclined to sit down at the lunch table and have money story like conversations, it opens up the donor to have conversations that, quite frankly, they've never had in their life. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think asking questions like, um, you know, where, where do you, where did you get your generosity? Like yeah, you raised right. in a home where you're very, like those types of, you know, childhood, young adult questions, um, 
you know, and, and from that kind of steals, steers the conversation in a way where people feel more comfortable opening up, right? Because to share, um, you know, where you started to where you are now, depending on what that is, right? If you started out, um, you know, wanting to be an entrepreneur and becoming one and being very successful and being able to provide for your family, that's a point of pride. Yeah. Um, and then some folks, you know, don't feel as open about their money stories. But I think, yeah, asking those questions around generosity, what is their motivation? You know, what is, you know, you know, a lot of times, I don't know if I'd ask this question this way anymore, but years ago I was taught, you know, what is, what is your legacy? What would you like to leave behind? Right. And that would be with these, you know, when I work with nurses who live to be like 95 because they know how to take care of themselves, it was those type of questions, right? What is it, you know, and you would hear, you would hear their money stories. They were very open to talk about it because they'd overcome a lot um, to become nurses and they had, they sacrificed many times their own personal you know, desires to be a nurse because they had to choose as a woman in the forties and the fifties, will you get married or will you be a nurse? Right. Right. Um, and those are really important questions, you know, to have, but you have to do that. That's that discovery work that I mentioned earlier, right? You do the screening, but the discovery work is finding out who this person is and what is motivating them to give. And what are those stories from their childhood and beyond? Yeah. I mean, like we, we were able to figure out in this meeting, <clears throat> And it almost felt, and I've and I've and I've reflected on this a number of times, not with podcast guests, but uh, on this particular conversation. Um, it was almost like a money counseling session. This guy was giving money mm-hmm. to an institute to another institution for which he did not graduate. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> he, he was giving money to an institution for which he did not graduate from, but he very evidently wanted to have his identity attached to this institution. So it's the idea that I want to, you know, I want to graduate from, you know, Penn state. I didn't go to Penn state, but I kind of like the identity of Penn state being my alma mater. And so I give to that institution and I was able to sort of unravel that um, mm-hmm. and sort of go down that road Um and so it became in some ways sort of a counseling session for this guy. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I, I guess that's kind of what you're getting at too with the, um, with the idea of, of the powerfulness of a money story is, is that you just really sort of unravel parts of their identity. I don't think we see and understand and, until perhaps we've been doing the work that we do and we've done it as close as we have with, with individuals that money reveals so much about who we are. I mean, isn't that basically what you're getting at too, is that they start, when, when people start talking about their money, they start talking about their values. They start talking about which, what, which, which members of their family are particularly important to them, where money mm-hmm. came from, whether mom or dad sort of influenced them more. It says a lot about who they are. Yeah, to some degree, right? Because if you think about people without it, right, what does that say about them, right? So if I am poor um, and, you know, I want to be philanthropic, um, you know, I guess, well, I guess talking about how I give my money, right, would be helpful. But, yeah, I find that um, when we can open the door for donors, to move past this transactional, here I am for my annual visit, but here I am to understand who you are, 
And that's all of, that's just not money story, but everything, who you are and how you, how I can be a part or shepherd you through the process of connecting deeper and more meaningfully with this organization through your time and your service and your talent, right? The church does this really well. Yeah. Um, But I think in fundraising, there's a sense, and I found that organizations, um, when I worked for a seminary, I found that those conversations were much easier to have than when I worked at university or regular organizations. There was a different shift, um, you know, and maybe even higher ed was easier too, but I found that, you know, connecting people or, or making opening the door for people to connect in more meaningful ways, um, in some ways depended on the mission of the organization, I felt, for my experience in helping people to connect. I haven't, but I feel like we're the gatekeeper, right? We can just open, I mean, not gatekeeper, but we can, I hate using that word, but we can just open the door. Like we're there to just usher people into these relationships. We have to be able to tap into, you know, more than just their wealth screening and, you know, who their top three philanthropic interests are. I haven't asked anybody this, but you just mentioned the Mm. word transactional, for example. I've never, I have never the nature of the work that I have done has never afforded me the sense that anything that I was doing was terribly transactional by it. But I've never had any animosity towards that term. What type of work is a person doing? And is it absent of things like what we're talking about, like not having these meaningful conversations that makes it transactional? Because I have never had any issues with feeling like my work was transactional. Mm-hmm. Why mm-hmm. is that? Well, maybe because it was your perspective. I mean, I've witnessed transactional relationships. I've witnessed where, um, you know, we sat down with a segmented list and, you know, the top person just kind of looked to see who had the highest wealth rating and, you know, looked at a couple other gift histories. Well, I've worked in that. I've worked in that space too. But what I'm saying is, is I've never, okay. I've never felt like my work was transactional. Like I've been in that office that you just described where me and the boss went through this list and the boss expected me to ask Mm -hmm. this person in accordance with that expectation and stuff. I I get that. But, but once I'm at that lunch table, I don't think I've ever permitted myself uh, to feel. And I don't know that. I I don't know. I mean, um, have you had money stories done the job really well? And do you think there's still donors on the other side of any of these engagements you've had throughout your career that still think that that perhaps was still transactional? No, I wouldn't say, I would say no, Okay. but you know, back to my initial point, like what happens from that room is that when you meet with the donor, the person isn't listening. The person is there to get that next best gift. Yeah. And that's what they're focused on. And they're going to drive that. They're going to make a hard ass, which is not, you know, a straight direct hard ask is not problematic to me. But in the sense that they are not, their perspective is I am here to meet with you so we can close this gift. And um, and not really taking the time to hear what the donor is saying. I've said in meetings where literally the donor has said, you know, I'm having to help my son, my grandkids out. This is going to be a really tough year for me. My business is, and the person has still sat there and made an ask in a way that was not conscientious of what the person had just said. Told to them. it, right? They didn't listen, right? 
they weren't listening. And so that's what I mean when I say, tra- I mean, I, I'm saying you're just cringing yeah. because you're thinking, oh my God, they are not going to take my call next year. Right. And so, you know, those types of transactional, those have been transactional to me, but my work, I see people and, um, you know, and I have always valued people and I've always, uh, valued people's generosity. And so I don't, I don't expect or feel entitled to a donor's generosity. And I think in transactional, there's a sense of, well, we just, you know, we say things like we count on your support or we look for, but there's a sense of entitlement, right? Well, you have to give to this. And I've been in environments, particularly around corporate corporate fundraising as well, where that is the attitude. And um, it is not one that I would want to embrace, but it definitely is transactional. Definitely. I, I have not said this to a, person I'm coaching lately or anything. I've said that I haven't said this in a long time, but one of the things I, I, I remember saying a number of times when I was doing a lot of coaching, uh, was I said, in, in order to get it right, you sort of focus on the subsequent gift. So it's never the gift that's right there in front of you that you're soliciting, but think about it. And you kind of, that was kind of, kind of interwoven into the example you just gave that if you're thinking about is one of the ways to avoid sort of a transactional type nature to the, to the exchange to, to be thinking about, okay, I want to, I want to at a minimum to be renewing and perhaps turning this, this, this one-time gift into a multi-year pledge or something, something, but, but it's thinking about sort of the gift that happens. It's at least multi-transactional, if that makes sense. (laughs) I mean, does multi, if if we just called it multi-transactional, would at least be better than, uh, we take out transactional and you know i wouldn't want anyone to look at me and say ah this is one of our multi-transactional donors um i guess i could get that from the finance guy's perspective um but yeah no i think and i think you're absolutely right this sense that when you're meeting with a donor it is not and that's how that's how transactional relationships work because it is in the moment it is urgent it's right now Uh i am not thinking about how this is going to land next year i am right now gonna you know strong arm you you know strongly encourage you to give this gift and then i'm going to run and take the gift but that relationship that is the core the relationship of trust and rapport is broken and you know a lot of times it's up for that second person or the person that reports in to kind of clean it up and, um, you know, maintain the relationship. And I have been in those situations more than I'd like to have yeah, been. Yeah. And it's always been from a level of desperation, you know, urgency, poor planning, right. Not really having a good kind of, you know, source of donors that they're cultivating and building relationships with, and they're just driving home and they're trying to get the money and that's, what's important. Um, and nothing else. Is it fair to say this is sort of the dark side that I see in our work that I don't think we're willing to confront. Um, I don't think some of us want to hear that don't that that money story. I think I think, and it's not necessarily because the board or the boss wants it to be transactional, and I don't think it's because the, the donor won't tell us their money story. But I think some of us land at that lunch table, and we don't want to the joy that we find in the work is the accomplishment of sort of, you know, it's like the hunt or something, right? It's, it is closing Mm -hmm. the deal. And to do that, to close the deal sometimes doesn't require knowing the money story, for example. Um, Mm -hmm. And we haven't developed an appreciation 
but we also haven't found joy in in sitting there and learning what the story is. We don't, that's not where we find our joy. Is there a problem in your mind with that? Is that the fundraiser you're going to, so, you know, you're working with a client there in the Bay Area, they're going to hire a development officer. That's the fundraiser I'm not going to place with a client. The person who doesn't want, I, I, I've been working with a guy for the last five years, coaching him. He's finally in the right job. Um, he wants to hear people's story, but he, before he wants to ask for money. Mm. Mm-hmm. But if all you want to do is ask for money, I'm not putting you anywhere. Yeah. Cause it's a relationship, right? It's, it's absolutely a relationship. You know, I was, I was just thinking like, you do want a person cause sometimes I feel like I talk so much about authenticity and donor stories and all money stories that people think that I'm not asking for you know, money. No, I'm very goal. Yeah. I'm very no, I, I, I ask right? for a hell of a lot of money too. I think the power of the money story gets you to a bigger gift. Absolutely. And it may take you longer to get there, but the goal, you know, I show up because I raise money. I, you know, ultimately (laughs) I show up to raise money. And for me, because money is necessary, right? That's the only way we're going to get this done is through money. If it was something else, I'd be raising corn or whatever else you would do that could be some sense of tenure. But for me, it is the fact that if you are interested in who the donor is and and really interested in connecting the donor's passions and resources to a mission, because that's really what you're doing as a fundraiser, yeah. then, you know, you may not get to the money story that quickly. I remember working with a donor for three years. They never returned my emails, never returned a call. They would give a gift. It wasn't their best gift. I knew it wasn't their best gift. And then th- three years in, I go over their house. They keep me there for like two hours over how long I was supposed to be there. I learned so much about them. And they, you know, and then they ended up giving, endowing the scholarship, right? And so if I would have not connected with them. So what I'm saying is that, yes, I think you want somebody that enjoys reaching goals. You yeah. want a person that's yeah. motivated by yeah. that. Because I've had people not motivated by that, and that's not good either. But you also want people to understand the value and what happens when you build that relationship and you understand the motivation behind giving or money story or, you know, their their generosity, how you build a long-standing relationship, because that's what you want. You want people to stick around um, being generous for years, you don't want them come and give like two big gifts and then they're gone. That's not what you want to sustain the mission. It shouldn't be what you want. I think a lot of the challenges that we have in fundraising right now, I think a lot of the challenges we have are because the work has become exploitive rather than exploratory. And I think if you mm. just listen to what you just said and you think about what we've just talked about, I think when the fundraiser shows up with a well screen in hand, knowing that this donor can and will give $25,000, that's exploitive. And that he, and he, the donor of the fundraiser knows that he can close that deal in a matter of, you know, 45 minutes. But if, if we, if we, if we set the bar higher, exploratory work doesn't mean that the opportunity is not there. It's just that, and I always use the analogy of being dropped into the jungle and going and looking for treasure. We know there's treasure there to find. It's just, we don't know exactly where that treasure's at and we don't know how much we're going to find. And oftentimes we find a whole lot more than we think we're going to find. And we have designed fundraising into such an exploitive sort of way. Like, like, Mm -hmm. like I would say that I have felt guilty and perhaps this is because I, I like to drive to the much more 
meaner terms, I guess, um, rather than using the word transactional, what if we just said the word exploit? Because that's a far heavier term. If we said, okay, if, if either side of the relationship is trying to exploit the other, it's kind of gross and it's inappropriate and we shouldn't be there. But if we can actually get ourselves to the lunch table and have exploratory conversations so as to arrive at a place where something is very meaningful for both of us, I mean, Wanda, isn't that, that is the work that I could do if I was going to land back in a fundraising job right now, that's the only work I will agree Mm -hmm. to do. Mm -hmm. And I've gotten so good. The other thing I've gotten so good at doing is I've gotten so good at figuring out whether an organization even knows how to employ me to do that type of work. I I don't think 50% of the organizations out there even know how to set up their fundraisers to do exploratory work. All they want them to do is exploit the donor. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I think there's transactional and I think there's exploit. So I'm willing to <laughs> okay. embrace both of those definitions. Be, and, and I think if you made a good point, it can go both ways. Oh, we, yeah, we know it goes both mission ways. Drift, yeah, we yeah, know it goes both mission ways. Drift yeah. And all these other things that happen when a donor shows up and it's just like, this is what you need to do, right? And, yeah. kind of, and organizations will clamor to that. Yeah, I think that people, um, they, they don't know where to begin with fundraising and sometimes they're just mentally not at the right place. I mean, my, my business is almost a year in and, you know, I probably turn away more clients than maybe I should in my first year. But a part of that is because I'm really looking for people that want to do the real work and want to create systems that are different than what we have now and systems that aren't so metrics focused but you don't have some of the core things in place and you're not providing a supportive structure for fundraising, like fundraising in itself, you know, yeah, I hate to use this term, but it needs some nurturing care. Like you you can't start an organization and just think that, you know, in a year or two that, you know, things are going to be great. And we've all had, you know, I've been in very many positions where lead positions where I had to say, it's not going to work like this. We're not going to turn the ship in one hour. And so I feel like this, the shifts are thinking about developing those relationships, thinking about avoiding exploitive and transactional relationships are really important. But I think when folks have money stories, that is about, you know, you just you work and, and you get the money and at any cost. And it's about the hunt. Right. Because that, that can be a part of what you were taught to think about money, yes. acquiring money yes. or work. And so, you know, you put those people in those lead positions and they are creating these environments where, you know, someone like me who's going to say, I'm sorry, I'm not going to, we're not, gonna, I'm going to tell you what gift we're going to get from that person from my conversation because I'm going to ask the right questions and I'm going to do the work, right work. And if that, if that doesn't fit within your short six month time frame, I mean, I, there's nothing else I can do, right? Cause ethically, I want to perform in a certain way. Yeah. Um, because I feel like my own values tell me that people matter yeah. and donors matter and, and their resources, um, is a gift to the organization and we are not entitled to it, but yeah. Does the word, um, does the word exploit not sit on your tongue more as comfortably as the word transactional? Like it's okay to describe fundraising as trans. You're okay with the idea of using transactional as a way to sort of critique fundraising, but to suggest that in some way it could be exploitive is, is a harder term and a harder accusa- accusation to make. 
No, I think there's a distinction between the so two, just, and we okay. most definitely. Okay. No, I'm willing to embrace both. Okay. Right? Okay. I may start using it because we are. I mean, I've seen organizations and people do both. Yeah. yeah I just, I, I think that there is a gradation between, you know, authentic donor relationships and exploited. I think there's a yeah. place in the yeah. middle where a lot of people land um, that aren't going to be completely, you know, completely turning off the donor, but also, but not making a real. Yeah. Connection with the donor to build a long standing relationship. Because I think I, I, I think it's interesting. And this is what this this is this this is sort of a, a, a final thought you can ponder with me for a moment. But mm-hmm. and you and I were talking about this before we hit the record button. And we've we've both been part of conversations on social media about the language that we use in fundraising. But one of the terms that I refuse to use. Uh, when I'm describing what we refer to as lane one fundraising is the word acquisition, because the word acquisition in some way or another implies ownership or that you can acquire something as if it's an object. And mm-hmm. I'm sorry, but I don't acquire you and you're not going to acquire me. You know what I mean? Um, and I think that's some of the language that we've got to work out of. Um, one author that I've been reading and I incorporate into this new book is this is this author who basically talks about how we've designed systems in our broader society. He's not critiquing fundraising, but he's talking about how we, we refer to customers as if they are animals to be caught and killed and, you know, objects to acquire and accumulate and stuff. And that's just not, I think what happens when we sit down and have lunch with a, with a donor, whoever they happen to be and whoever we happen to be, we start to see their humanity and nobody's acquiring anybody, right? Yeah. Yeah. But you know what? I think what happened, and I'm not sure, I've been trying to study the history of fundraising at least the last 150 so odd years. Yeah. I've been trying to like kind of figure out where, do we where did, where did all this right? stuff come from? Right. <laughs> what happened? Um, and there was problems in the early beginning yeah. is what I'm finding out. Yeah. Um, but uh, it almost very contemporary problems. But one of the things that I noticed as a fundraiser initially in my career, I had biz- sales business training for fundraisers and it was done by a major corporation that had a huge sales force and it was part of their actual sales training, but they adopted it yeah. for fundraiser, quote unquote. Yeah. And I could, and so I don't know if that's true, but this, the last 20 plus years, it's kind of, you know, the nonprofit sector looking to the business sector for some, maybe for some of this language and framework and systems, because that was successful, yeah. right? And we wanted to build these bigger mega organizations. And so we begin to adopt that language. And so now it's kind of in the DNA, like we talk about it that way. I've been really, um, um, really vitalized by the work that I'm reading around James Langley, like mm-hmm. his book. Yeah on fundraising and really talking about how do we rethink and reshape not just language, but just what our practices, right. Um, and our approaches. But I really think that there has been, you know, there's nothing wrong with borrowing from different sectors. Um, but I think there's a real distinction around fundraising work. And I don't know if some of this kind of training and looking to the business world has been a part of that or not. Um, but I know just thinking back, I'm like, I, early on, I got all this language from that training. <laughs> yeah. Exactly where I got this language from. Yeah, I've, um, I've got a book here on my desk. It's, uh, I, I could, 
and can reach it. it it's Davies is her name, and she's writing about the 16th century gift. So she's writing about gifts mm. in 16th century France, and and part of what she's doing is she's um, explaining that you know you can go back, you can go way back, way back, way back in history, you know, pre Enlightenment and and in the midst of Dark Ages and the Renaissance, and you can find that there are three. So she distinguishes between the ways that human beings interact with the, interacted with each other. And one of them was what she called a gift mode. The other one was what she called a sales mode. And the other one was a coercive mode. And so the coercive mode would have looked like our modern day taxation, but it would also look like theft and fraud and those sorts of things. And then the sales mode would look like things like where you're buying and selling products and services and so forth and exchanging things, transactions. It would look very transactional. But she says the gift mode had its own, all three of these modes and the gift mode being one of them had its own repertoire of language and ways that we interact and gestures and everything. And I think that's part of what you're getting at. We're getting at, we've gotten through, you know, when we think about go back to where we we started this conversation, when you, when you sit down with someone and you start listening to their, their money story, you're probably trying to pick up on things that are probably much less oriented towards the sales mode. Like how can I sell you something or persuade you as much as you're trying to understand what are those things that would compel your generosity? Mm -hmm. Mm Like what motivates you to to be generous? I mean, if I think back on that Mm -hmm. gentleman that I've referenced a couple of times in this conversation, I was not looking for ways to connect the dots so that I could exploit this deal and close the deal that day. I wanted to understand why oftentimes, and you know, this, Oftentimes in that money store, we find out who they give to similarly or perhaps in even greater measure than the people mm-hmm. that we're representing. And you start to understand what compels them to be generous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that if we could if we could see value in that actual exercise, then I think we wouldn't we we would be less likely to exploit or have transactional kind of situations, if we could really value the time that you spent on the bench, which hopefully that information was put into a database and somebody could go back and look at that. But like, you know, the fact that, you know, you spent that time and that was better than three donor conversations. That was better than, you know, just talking on the phone, just being able to, to tap into kind of his motivation and um, his relationship with his money. Um, because it's different and people are generous for all types of reasons. And uh, we can't get to that if we're not asking the questions and giving space for people to open up and reveal what those motivations are. Because sometimes I don't even know if donors have thought seriously about all of their giving. Yeah. Um, and, you know, sometimes religious giving is a little bit more clear cut, but some of the other giving, like how, you know, how do you really want to impact this organization and impact the, the, the issue? And, um, and sometimes their own stories and connections to that help you to begin to uncover those money stories, which builds deeper relationships. Wanda, it has been a pleasure. I've had your attention for 50 minutes and uh, I'm sure we could keep each other going and wander down all sorts of paths, but uh, I won't throw any more curveballs at you. Um, I think we, uh, we hit some, 
pretty good points there. Wanda, if there's somebody's listening to our conversation today, perhaps they're in the Bay Area or perhaps they're somewhere else in the country or anywhere in the world and they want to reach out to you and continue this conversation, uh, how would you suggest that they do that? Sure. You can connect with me on my website at wandascottassociates.com or check me out or link on LinkedIn as well and make a connection. Um, I have a blog on my website as well, where I've talked about a lot of what we discussed today and more topics. And I'd love for you to engage with me. Thanks so much, Jason. Wanda, if somebody reaches out to you, what do you generally want to hear? I ask that question sometimes of consultants. Who's that person you want to hear from? There's there's an ideal client that uh, people Mm -hmm. like you and me like to hear from. And we kind of, we aspire to have that client. Who's that client? Yeah, I think someone that is open to learning and um, someone who will will be committed to the time investment. Mm-hmm. So I like folk, folks to, you know, not I just, you know, not just do the fundraising for them, but actually teach them. Yeah. And so being op- an openness and a willingness to really learn what fundraising it is and how to best um, build a fundraising program. Yeah. It can be meaningful work. Certainly can. Absolutely. Wanda, it's certainly been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Jason. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.